Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, Ministry of Turner Christian Church. I am Pastor Jack. I am Pastor Rachel. And I'm Pastor Matt. Hello and welcome in everyone to the Fully Grown Podcast, a ministry of Turner Christian Church. You are listening to episode 135, which is not actually the last episode we'll ever do of this podcast. Um, or even the last of this season. Or even the last of the season because... I lied last week. Yeah. I got so. confused. So I told people it was the last one, but we actually have next this week as well. And next week. Yep. So you're stuck with us for another yeah. week. <laughs> so... um. So yeah, this is episode 135, and we're going to start off this episode by talking about a topic that either is, um, I don't, I, I was going to say exciting, but I don't know if it's necessarily exciting, but maybe it's an important, plays an important role in your faith, or mm-hmm. it's something that you're like, I've had a lot of negative interactions with that word, yeah. so, or those, sca- those words. Yeah, it's yeah. either scary or meaningful. Yes. Um, so the, the words that come come to mind within this word uh so we're going to talk about repentance Mm -hmm. but then there's also so we do in our service a time called confession and reconciliation and i think those two things are a little bit similar they Mm -hmm. might not be exactly the same but they're a little bit similar at least yeah um and so we're just going to talk about those words and kind of the role that it can they that they play in our faith and so um So, yeah, do you want to start us off, Matt, a little bit, just some reflections? Sure. I can start off by talking about how they can, why they're a part of our service. Uh, It's actually, it's been a confession and repentance have been a part of Christian worship services for centuries. They aren't as common in evangelical churches or what we would call um, low liturgy churches. Liturgy is the, the structure of your service. And some churches have very high liturgy, which means it's highly scripted and everything is written out and they worship from like the book of common prayer or something like that low liturgy would be churches where things are more spontaneous and you know you really don't have any more script than just the order of service but confession and reconciliation have been part of the way the majority of christians worship for the majority of the history of the church and the reason we started doing it in our services is actually because it had come up in a series we did on prayer Uh, we did the summer of prayer um, my first summer here and then your first summer here we did the sequel with the psalms and both times we talked about the importance of confession and reconciliation and it's part of this philosophy that when we meet in the service we're not just watching something we're actually doing something the congregation is doing something meaningful and we it's it's a kind of a in a way it's a necessary step or it's an important step before you come to the table that we all acknowledge who we are um before we come to the table we we acknowledge that i'm broken and i need to be healed that we are all in the same boat and that when we're healed we're brought together and it's a way of preparing yourself for the lord's table uh, to remind us that we don't just deserve to be there. We, we, you know, we are being transformed by God. And that's an important regular habit to be in, to be um, acknowledging where you need to be changed. Um, now, an extreme of that mindset is when people think that you need to confess each sin so that you can be forgiven, because if you don't confess it, you're not forgiven. It's like this transactional view Um and that's not something that we 
that's not that's not part of our belief. For us, it's important because it's a matter of um, it's a matter of discipleship and growth to recognize where you are, where you need to go, and also how far you've come. So, yeah, that's that's how we ended up incorporating into worship. Yeah, and it's I think it's a very I wouldn't say necessarily that it's essential, but I think it's a very meaningful and impactful time um, for the believers in our congregation to go through that on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, it it might be essential within our, our own spirituality, our own faith to do that, you know, yeah. on a regular basis, but maybe not during, it's not essential during Sunday worship is what I'm trying to say, but yeah. it is meaningful and impactful. And um, I appreciate how we have a time for that. And I've heard several other people express that as well. Yeah, I, I think it's essential to the Christian life. It's not necessarily essential to a worship service. Mm-hmm. It's not like churches that don't do it are failing, but we yeah. all need that in our lives as Christians. Yeah, and so kind of where this topic came came up um, was, I was kind of reflecting on uh, the sermon series that I'm going to be, pre- going to be preaching on, and this, this word repentance came up, and I was like, what what is our English definition of repentance? And so I looked it up, and it's you know, it's it's this idea of um, I can't remember the exact definition of it, but kind of this idea of acknowledging our shortcomings and kind of um, feeling remorseful over those yeah. those things. Uh-huh. And I was like, man, that's kind of a negative, you know, negative Nancy kind of way to, to look at things. But yeah, it's also important. And so when you read scripture, right, there's a couple of verses when I was looking up um, this idea of transformation in scripture that say repent and be baptized right and i'm like yeah obviously that's a biblical idea and so um i was like well let's let's look at that for a brief minute and because the word repent has it kind of can can bring up negative connotations for people i think um people can look at it and be like you know i've heard i heard this sermon where you know the, the minister was just going off and saying you need to repent and be baptized and was yelling at me and you know, saying otherwise you're going to go to hell or all these different things, right? And so when we talk about those things as, as fire and brimstone type sermons, yeah, which can have a role to play when it's the only type of sermon you're ever preaching, though, it's like, well, can we hear something else that might yeah. be a little bit more encouraging? But yeah, um, for some folks, they've had a negative kind of experience with that mm-hmm. with that word of you know re- or those ideas of repent and be baptized, even though it's kind of a it is a biblical concept mm-hmm. because I think even Jesus himself says it you know, repent and be baptized. Yes, yeah. um, and so I just kind of wanted to, to chat about that a little bit yeah. and kind of acknowledge that, hey, it's not this idea of there's just one and done and then you just move on um, with life and say, well, I've repented and I was baptized and now I can just do whatever I want. And uh, one of my favorite terms that Paul uses throughout his letters is he asks a question, you know, like, should we just keep on sinning? By no means, you know, yeah. like yeah. that is not at all what that means. Mm-hmm. It, and it's this idea of, this is a continual thing as a believer. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's just to like look at yourself and say, bah, look how bad I am and just, you know, sulk in that. No, you're supposed to look at yourself and say, I do have shortcomings. And that's where Jesus comes into play. And that's why he's so great. And that's why um, my father in heaven is so great because he forgives me and loves me through those things. But I'm also supposed to be pursuing after something that's better. And that's that's good. And um, that's biblical. And I think that's where it comes into play. Like there is times that we must be looking at ourselves and saying, ah, I do have sins to repent of. I do have these things that I need to confess to God and give them up to him. But also 
there's this idea of reconciliation there of, no, I'm not just staying here and living however I want to. I'm pursuing after more and therefore being reconciled with others around me and with God at the same time. And so, yeah, yeah anyway, that's, yeah. those are some of my thoughts on the topic. Yeah. I think, um, I would say there's an important distinction in what we think repentance means and what the Bible means by repentance. Mm-hmm. Cause like the definition that you just described is how we normally mean the word, but it's not what the Greek word means mm-hmm. or the yeah. Hebrew behind it, because the, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, they don't have anything necessarily to do with feeling bad. They have to do with changing direction. Mm. Um, changing your mind is actually the word in Hebrew is often is it's the same word for changing your mind. So there are places in the King James where it says that God repented. Um, and now we translate that because of the, the way we think of repent having to do with just with sin, mm. they now translate it as relent because it's the same word, but in Hebrew, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're feeling bad or guilty. Mm-hmm. It means that you were going one direction and you've chosen to go another direction. And because sometimes what we'll end up doing is we're thinking that just feeling bad is fine and that gets you forgiven. And then it doesn't matter if you reoffend, so to speak. Uh, and, and obviously God can forgive us for, uh, you know, repeated mistakes, but c- repentance is actually changing course. Mm-hmm. You were going in a sinful direction and you have changed course. And so it's not just that, oh, I felt bad about this thing. It's that you decided not to do it anymore. Yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm, I, as I'm talking, I'm trying to think through whether the feeling bad is actually even essential. Would it be possible to repent from sin and not feel guilt about it? And I guess it's possible. I don't know. But, yeah. the, but the guilt, the, the point isn't we need everyone to feel guilty. The point is um, God wants people to change their direction, mm-hmm. which I think is also why repentance is a, is a habit we need to get into because we already have the habit of turning the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Even once you become a Christian, you've been baptized, you still have the tendency to go the wrong direction. And whenever we recognize that we're going the wrong direction, we need to repent of it and turn back. Yeah. So it's not a matter of if you don't repent of this sin, you're going to hell, um, even though you're a Christian. It's a matter of you're going the wrong direction and being a Christian means you want to follow Jesus mm-hmm. and he's going that way and you're going this way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so turn around, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and that's why we need to do it regularly because Mm -hmm. unless we reach a point where we're never straying from the path, we need to take a moment to return to it periodically. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily going to happen as we walk on this earth. We're always going to have a natural tendency to walk the wrong path and to have to say, Oh, messed up. Let me go to the right path and follow that one. Yeah. I think that's also why it's important to have confession as a regular habit because we do it on every Sunday, whether we, whether you feel, if you worship with us, you're prompted to do that every Sunday, whether you feel like you need it or not, Mm -hmm. because whether or not you need confession does not depend on whether you feel like it. Yeah. You know, you may not feel guilty at all, even though you have a lot of reasons to, and you're forced to think if you, well, not forced, but if you go along with what we're doing in the service, you'll actually reflect and realize, you know what? I actually have been holding on to bitterness toward this Mm -hmm. person and I should be letting that go. Even though you didn't, you weren't feeling conflicted about it at all. You were happy to hold on to that grudge. Yeah. You know, it's important to have a habit of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's times in life where there's things where 
like we're we're kind of blind to, right? We yeah. have our blinders on and we don't even know. Um, someone I, I really look up to and trust told me when I was in high school, I think it was, maybe it was middle school, middle school or high school. And we were just chatting about how, you know, there's a, a way that I felt wronged by someone that they didn't even know that, you know, they had done or they didn't see it as they had wronged me. Mm-hmm. And I know there's ways where I've wronged someone where I don't even didn't even know that, like, I had done that or what I did had um, negatively affected them. Yet they still, you know, were like, hey, I forgive you for this thing. And I'm like, what? I didn't I don't remember doing that. Or, you know, I, that wasn't a big deal. Um, but, you know, he told me like, hey, um, sometimes people are going to do things that hurt you and they don't even realize that they're doing something that's hurting you. And so um, even within your own heart, just to say, Lord, I forgive this person. Right. Just to walk through those steps yeah. and to process through those things mm-hmm. can be really impactful. So even when there's things that we don't even know that we've done wrong or strayed from the path of God, walking through the steps of um, confession and reconciliation is impactful. To, yeah. And just to say, and Lord, there, I know there's things that I did this week that aren't ac- according to your will. And I know I, I walked the wrong path. And so I, you know, I confess those things up to you as well. Um that I don't, I don't recognize, um, can even be impactful, I'd say as well. Yeah. Yes. And I think sometimes the most powerful part of confession is actually the one that makes us, um, non-Catholics, uh, the most uncomfortable. Mm. And that's in the Catholic church, they would call it absolution. Um, but that's the idea that you're actually being forgiven as you confess. Mm-hmm. So in the Catholic church and in, in some, some Protestant churches like the Episcopalians, like you'll confess and the priest will then declare you have been forgiven on their authority as a priest. I'm careful not to do that because we have a different understanding of um, the role of pastors that mm-hmm. we're not, we don't stand between people and God. Um, but what we do during that process, we read scripture that assures us yeah. that when we confess, we're forgiven. Mm-hmm. And then we can tell, give each other that assurance of absolution to say, because you have confessed and God promises to forgive you, you are forgiven. And that can be incredibly powerful to people who are carrying guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. If we, when, and sometimes we lose the power of it, maybe because on some level we don't believe it, but there is actual forgiveness that happens there. It's a biblically sound yeah. reality. And that can be incredibly powerful for people who have guilt and shame to know that they genuinely can be forgiven. Yeah. And that, that belief aspect is huge, you know, cause there's definitely been things where in, in my life, you know, where I have kind of this specific uh, struggle, you know, whether, you know, whatever it be. And um, I'm not necessarily always convinced that, you know, like I've, I've been forgiven or yeah. whatever else. Yeah. Um, but when I, the words that I often say, just because it, it it relieves weight off of my shoulders, like physically, I feel it relieve weight, is, God, I, I give this up to you, mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying, I'm sorry for my sins, or I, for, yeah. I confess my sins, right? Which are very valid words to say, and for mm-hmm. some people, that's what they say, and, you know, they feel that weight lifted. But for me, it's like, I confess my sins, and I give this up to you, Father. You yeah. know? But it's kind of that idea of, like, I'm taking the weight off of me and I'm giving it to someone who can actually bear that weight and uh, do something with it. And so, Mm -hmm. so yeah. And I I wouldn't say that everyone has, there's not just like one specific way to to do it, you know, but um, 
definitely making time for that type of a, a practice is important, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now in our second segment of episode 135 of the Fully Grown Podcast, I have some questions related to the most previous sermon from the plan series, um, which is the penult- penultimate one, right? That means second to last, right? Second to last. Second yep. to last. So so that was the penultimate sermon. So this is the penultimate episode. Yes. Uh, it's podcast. And so, I mean, so you've preached through 35 of these. Yes. Well, did I do one? Or no, I've preached 34 because you did one. Yeah. No, wait. No, you did two. I've preached through 33 because you did Esther and you did um, Isaac and Jacob and its sons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Seems like so long ago. I don't even remember it. So It's a long series. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start this series? Like, when was the first Whatever episode? the first Sunday. Uh, it was the Sunday after Labor Day. So, I think it was the second Sunday of September. So, September. So, yeah. it's it's kind of a end of summer to beginning of summer type of deal that we've been doing just yep. all the way around. Yep. So. It's the whole school year, basically. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, episode 35 of the plan, and it was entitled The Mission. Yes. Um, and so I do have a few questions. And um, so this first one, as we as you were going through the story coordinates, um, the, the presence, you said, was in the church. And this got me thinking because um, there was a couple times throughout the the plan in the Old Testament where you kind of you were clear to point out that God was clear about how um, he didn't agree with what Israel would be doing. And so he kind of not necessarily severed himself off from them, but like kind of separated himself from them and what they were doing, saying, that's not my will that they're doing. They're mm-hmm. they're wrong in that. And so, as you said, the, the presence is in the church. I started uh-huh. wondering, does God do that with the church now? Is that something that he does to say, Listen, the church isn't necessarily going along with what my will would be. So let me kind of, you know, discern my will from them. Ooh, that is an interesting question. We didn't actually go over these beforehand. And I'm really intrigued by that question because two things off the top of my head, two things jumped to my mind. Number one is that there is there's nothing in scripture that tells us that God will remove the Holy spirit from the church. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what it would be if he, um, if he were to replicate like the exile, mm-hmm. removing the spirit, that is not going to happen. And I think the reason is because there's an important step where the Holy spirit, according to scripture is actually given to us by God through Jesus. Um, on the, uh, they actually specifically say in Pentecost that Jesus has poured out the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense that Jesus is the one who had like, <clears throat> Jesus has taken on the role of Israel in being the faithful representative of who God okay. is and what God's people are supposed to be so that we can always point back to Jesus and say, even if I've messed up, Jesus is the one who has earned that mm-hmm. place and it endures as long as Jesus endures, you know, and so we're participating in what Jesus has, and he, and so he's not going to remove the spirit from us. Um, <clears throat> so on that hand, I would say, no, there isn't an equivalent of God ending that relationship with the church. However, there is, there's another level of, <clears throat> of that tendon of that, that theme where God shows through 
the failures of God's people, like they fail in battle, they get oppressed, things like that. He's yeah. showing that they're not on track. And I think there is a sense in which that endures. I mean, there's a place in Revelation where Jesus is dictating letters to churches. And to one of them, he says, I will, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. And the lampstand resem- uh, represents the church itself. So mm-hmm. it seems like in some way, God, Jesus is going to dissolve that church or, or do something so that the church, no- that church, no longer exists, which is not necessarily saying anything about like, he's not removing his spirit from any of the Christians there. Um, And it's interesting to note that there is no longer really a church there Mm -hmm. because it's, uh, it's in Turkey and it's a Muslim country now, but um, there is some sense in which God, Jesus in those letters talks as if he will do things, act in history to show that, um, to, to judge the church in ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, that isn't to say that we can then judge a church that's prospering must be doing things right in a church that's not, yeah. isn't. Uh, well, maybe we can, as long as we have the right definition of prospering, because prospering isn't having a lot of people or having a lot of money or mm-hmm. having a flashy worship service, things like that. Prospering would be um, it would be according to the ideals of the kingdom of God, which would mean transformed lives and genuine community and compassion and love and and that a faithful community. And if you see that happening, then you'd say, yes, that is mm-hmm. that is um, a, tr- a church that is on that is doing the right thing. And if it's a church that's driven by conflict or is authoritarianly controlled or, you know, there's a lot of by kingdom standards, a church is failing. And you could say in that case, that means they're not doing it right yeah. in some way. Yeah. All righty. I'm not, it, not to like pat myself on the back or anything, <laughs> but as I was thinking of that question, I'm like, huh, that's a, that's an interesting kind of, you know, rabbit trail to go down yeah. a little bit. Cause you know, it, there are clear instances in, in the old Testament where God is, you know, saying, I'm not, <laughs> this isn't my intention and this isn't yeah. what I want Israel to be doing. Um, but it does make sense in, in kind of the way that Jesus is a new Israel, that he would take that on mm-hmm. and would be kind of the person that we now point back to to say, hey, he's the one and he lived perfectly and this is what it's supposed to look like and yeah. so on and so forth. Well, I think that's the way in, uh, that we would say the mission of Israel is completed, that yeah. the story of Israel is finished, that Jesus finished it because we can look back at Jesus, no matter how we fail, as long as we can point back to Jesus and in Jesus, the revelation is complete. Mm-hmm. We still have the mission of pointing people to Jesus and reflecting Jesus. But I think that's why there's no more scripture Yeah, because the revelation is complete. Mm-hmm. And now we just point to the revelation. Yeah. All righty. Well, my next question comes from the point where you said that many Jews and Gentiles opposed Paul's message because it had real political and economic consequences. And so I wanted to ask, what political and economic consequences does the gospel carry today? Ooh, excellent question. That is a landmine if ever I've heard one. <laughs> um, well, I think that there's a reason why the church is often at the center of political conflicts. Um, because, the, because the gospel compels us to view humanity in a certain way. It compels us to understand justice in a certain way. It compels us to value other people in a certain way. And so, you know, the, the political consequences 
you can see it whether you agree with it or not you can see it in a lot of people who have uh, who are single issue voters mm. who will vote pro-life no matter what else because of a conviction that they have from scripture about um, the nature of human life and the sanctity of it and, and and whether you agree with it or not it is a one of those examples of a person's conviction about the gospel ending up being very politically mm-hmm. powerful uh, I would argue that it's the same it's the reason why the church has ten, has been at the center of uh, movements to end discrimination to end um, segregation things like that because uh, unfortunately, the church has been on both sides of a lot of those issues, mm-hmm. but the the gospel compels us to recognize everyone as image bearers. Mm-hmm. And so the church has actually been the main driving force for the um, for advocating for the poor, advocating for women, mm-hmm. advocating for slaves and against slavery, against racial prejudice. Um, because of the way the Bible teaches, teaches us to treat people. The problem is that because of how divided we are and how we interpret the gospel, how we interpret the Bible, it also means we're divided in how we apply it and how we understand the political implications. So it gets really touchy for me to get any more specific. I mean, I could tell you what, how I personally interpret it into political issues, but I don't think that's what this is about. No, I just, and and I know, yeah, yeah. But, but that's, and that's, I think why people will, people who oppose the church, the main reason why people oppose the church is because mm-hmm. they disagree with what they see as the political implications. Because otherwise it's not like people get worked up about sewing circles mm-hmm. and anime clubs yeah. and bowling leagues, yeah. but they get upset about the church because the church shapes how people behave in the world mm-hmm. and how they spend their money. Yeah. And it's, it's a tricky subject, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I saw a video recently of a a minister. I don't know how much I want to place that word on, on this man that was preaching. Um, but his what he said was, you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this country. Um, just point blank. You cannot yeah. be a, a Democrat or a Christian and vote Democrat in this country. And then he proceeded to call Democrats demons um, and not not placing, you know, my personal you know preferences within this this comment at all. But I think in general, right, there, there's room to be on on both sides. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with him that you can't be, you know. Uh, you have you can't be Christian and, and vote Democrat in this country. I also wouldn't say you can't be a Christian and vote. Uh, I wouldn't say you can't be Christian and vote Republican in this country, yeah. right? Because um, it's not neither party is perfect, and yeah. you know neither party is is perfectly biblically aligned. Um, I think, and I'm, I want to be careful when I say this and not just say point blank, you know, like because um, it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But I think sometimes we get caught up with the issues and the issues become the issue and we completely forget about the people that are involved with it sometimes. Yeah. Um, and the people matter. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, also not saying any particular way about how, how I believe, um, but the fact that someone live streamed themselves going into a supermarket and shooting people. Mm-hmm. Right that's got to raise red flags to say there's, there's a problem here and we need to come together and fix it because those 10 people that lost their lives, they, they matter. 
Yeah. Right? Yep. And not necessarily to say that we need to completely ban guns or that, you know, we need more guns or whatever else, you know, just to say that there are problems within the world that we live and the yeah. people matter and we should be caring about them. Yeah. Uh, as far as that um, speaker that you were talking about, I, I would argue that if I don't know a single basis on which you could say that you can't a Christian can't vote Democrat but they can vote Republican mm -hmm. because both parties have positions and tendencies that are yeah. deeply unchristian. Mm -hmm. And both of them have principles that are, that reflect a Christian worldview. And so unless you're going to decide this is the only Christian value that matters um, and the Republic and the mm -hmm. Republican party supports it and the Democrats oppose it, unless you're only going to pick one issue, you can't say one party yeah. or the other is the only one. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, some people do that. And there's no biblical basis for saying there's only one issue that actually matters. Mm -hmm. um, the other important thing, so I'm getting ready to speak at a conference on political theology next weekend mm -hmm. when you start your series. And one of the big things that I want to convey to people as we go through what the Bible has to say about politics is that in scripture, the primary, the way God shapes the world is not through governments. It's through the church. Um, God it uses governments to to make things, you know, to open up possibilities for the church. Mm -hmm. You know, like Paul tells the church to pray for peace, to pray for the government so that the government's policies will enable them to spread the gospel. Mm -hmm. But there's never a sense that the Roman Empire is going to save the world. There's never a sense that by passing laws through Caesar, we're going to save the world. There's always, it's always the church that is the, that is God's chosen way of transforming the world into his kingdom. And so that's why I hate to see Christians get divisive and, and abandon key gospel principles for the sake of political power, mm -hmm. winning an election or passing a law and losing the integrity of the church, which is actually where which is what actually has the capacity to change the world. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important for us that when we come up against the social issue, our first question should be, what can the church do? Mm -hmm. How can we address this through the way our church lives and interacts with each other and interacts in our community? Mm -hmm. You know, how is God using our congregation to shape lives around us in this particular issue? Yeah. Yeah. Again, a complicated subject. Very complicated. Right? It's definitely not simple. So. Nope. <laughs> Um, well, my next question actually kind of goes along with this idea of, of caring for people, at least I assume. Um, so when, within the, the morals, you had a point that says the gospel will always um, provoke strong reactions because it transforms the way we live together in this world. And my question was, you know, how should this inform us and in how we interact with people? Because we know that what we're sharing with them or what we're living out might uh, evoke strong reactions? I would say do what you can, first of all, to make sure that they're reacting to the gospel and not to you. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes I've heard people use the, you know, scripture teaches us that there will be persecution and, and people will react negatively to us. Jesus says, if they, you know, opposed me, they'll oppose you. And I've seen Christians use that as a license to not care about how people respond. Mm -hmm. And so they'll just, they'll, they'll speak the truth in very unloving ways. And I think, but Peter also says that um, it's no credit to you to s suffer for doing evil, mm -hmm. you know? So if we're actually, 
if the problems are because I'm being a jerk, yeah, then I'm, I'm outside of God's plan. I'm mm-hmm. outside of what I'm supposed to be doing. So the first thing would be make sure that if people are angry at you, they're actually angry at Jesus, yeah. not at your, you being a jerk or being mm-hmm. insensitive, you know, but if we are reflecting Jesus, then there are going to be reactions from people. I think another key thing that we can do is explain, show our work explain mm-hmm. why we're saying something, where those values come from, because in reality, the values of the gospel are deeply embedded in our world. There's an interesting book that I read last year called Dominion about how it was written by a non-Christian about how the Western worldview is completely shaped by Christianity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the so-called anti-Christian movements in the world, um, like communism, for instance, are actually... Um, they're actually people who are upset because the church isn't doing what the church is supposed to be doing. And so they turn to another way of doing it. So all that is to say that there's actually, um, at least in the West, there's a lot of common ground that we share with people. If we can explain how we got there Mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying, well, these are the rules and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can explain how our, our principles are based in love and based in, uh, trust in a God who cares for us and knows right and wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think that can make a big difference and it can, even if they don't end up agreeing with you, they can at least not believe you're a horrible person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah and that's big. Um, I, there was a, a coworker that I had at Staples um, who had been a part of several different churches in Southern California. Um, and then he moved up to Idaho and um we would just we would talk about you know my faith a lot because he knew I was going to Bible college and and things of that nature, and for he would tell me like for so long people would just be judgmental of him and say you know you need to live this way and blah 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 and just would keep judging him, um, but not many people listened to him just would sit there and listen mm-hmm. to him and what you know what he was thinking and and why and these different types of things they just tell him what he needed to think and how he needed to act and um and uh he, just people didn't really have a conversation with him and i think within that you know I, I learned a lot of just um patience is important to mm-hmm. practice with with people because um i don't know i've never i've never been in a relationship where i was able to convince somebody that you know jesus is real and that they need to accept him and that yeah. you know um I've just I've never been in a relationship with like like that, but I have been in relationships with people where I'm um, just me being with them and hanging out with them and just talking with them, you know that impacted them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where this coworker's at or whether he you know um, gave his life to Christ or not, but um, him and I had some wonderful conversations just about faith and and what that looks like in the real world. Um, and there was something that you said that came up in my discipleship class that um, you know I think is really important too. We need to make sure that we're speaking God's message and not our message. Yeah. Um, because once we start speaking our message, if someone looks up to us and trusts us, then we're just kind of creating a carbon copy of ourselves and how we think and our opinions about the world yeah. that aren't necessarily biblical truths. Um, and so we need to be careful about that. And that's something that I try to be as careful as I can about because I don't want to just create, you know, people that are carbon copies of me that just think the same opinions that I do about the world when they're not actually biblical truths. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I heard a phrase, I think Mike Miller told me this, um, 
that the gospel you win them with is the gospel you win them to. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I have known, I have known evangelists who were really brash and loud and kind of mean mm-hmm. and, um, and were very, um, proud of the people that they had converted and, and that it's a good thing, but every, every one of that person's disciples that I knew was the same way. They yeah. were brash and loud and, and a little mean and, mm-hmm. and dismissive and, um, and that's, yeah, we got to be careful that what we're winning people to is actually Jesus. Cause yeah, because yeah, people don't need to be like me mm-hmm. to follow Jesus. And unfortunately, if I try and make them like me, I'm at best, I'm, forcing them to become a particular kind of Christian at worst, I'm keeping them away from Jesus because they don't want to be like me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I have one final question. Um, and I was kind of looking through, I've kind of in the last few weeks, I've kind of been looking at the questions that you ask within the small group questions just to kind of see, um, you know, where you're kind of leading people in their Mm -hmm. discussions and things. And so, um, there was kind of one idea that you had brought up in terms of suffering, um, for the gospel. And I wanted to ask you, should we always be suffering for the gospel or is there room to not be suffering as well for the gospel? Um, I don't think that suffering is something we should be seeking out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was a there was a fad when I was a, in youth group. It was after Columbine. They started to share this story of a of a girl who was shot because she was a Christian. And since then we found out that that's not necessarily how this, how it went down, but it launched this fascination in my generation with martyrdom Mm -hmm. and like the Jesus freak stuff. And, and it was a big deal. And you had these very, like you had these middle-class white kids in the most prosperous, safest, uh, most, um, religiously free society ever to exist on the earth obsessed with martyrdom and Mm. persecution and looking back it looks kind of silly um because we weren't being forced to suffer for the gospel but we were like seeking it like trying to find ways like if you were a christian in a way that didn't take anybody off at school then you weren't doing it right Mm. um I don't think that we're supposed to be suffering. Suffering isn't necessary that necessarily the barometer that you're doing it right. I think that we shouldn't avoid suffering, mm-hmm. which is the difference. We shouldn't compromise our faith to avoid suffering. And if you, I think you will suffer for the gospel to the degree in which the community you're in is hostile to the gospel. So if you're in a community that's not hostile, hostile to the gospel, you're not going to suffer mm-hmm. and you shouldn't try to make it that way. But if you're in a culture that is very hostile to the gospel, then you should expect to suffer. And that shouldn't keep you from being faithful to God. I think that's the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So in our day and age, it's probably not going to, it's probably not going to involve government persecution. It might involve um, relationships Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and feeling uh, unwelcome at times or being unrepresented in the media or which I, those aren't things I would call persecution, but you know, there are ways that we're kind of singled out, you know, there, there are things that being a Christian costs you Yeah, and we should be willing to pay those costs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have a friend, um, who's from Pakistan and, um, her family there runs a Christian school and, 
um, kind of one of the things that at least I've picked on uh, up on from from them is this idea that the way that their school operates or the the way that their faith can operate depends on who's the president uh-huh. of their nation, um, and it can go back and forth. So right now they have a president who's pretty. Um, pretty open to you know people practicing different religions and things of that nature but there's definitely been times where that was not the case at all and you had to pretty much you know kind of hide who you were and how you were practicing certain things and i think they've had several years where they've been able to do that um but there's still kind of a culture there that you know really looks down upon christians and you know looks at them as as less than or that they're threatening you know their way of life and things of that nature definitely not to the extent of nations that are around pakistan yeah but um so it's kind of interesting to you know have gotten to known people who have experienced that type of persecution mm-hmm. um where you know i grew up in a place that isn't hostile necessarily towards christians or christianity um you know and there's definitely been recently some hot button issues that have popped up that have created conflict uh, in division within our, our nation of different things. Um, but I still haven't necessarily seen this this persecution that people might experience elsewhere, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. Um, and like you say, with relationships, it might definitely happen within personal relationships. If there's something that you believe, um, you know, based in scripture and something so, that someone else believes that, you know, they're not a believer, that might create tension within the relationship and mm-hmm. might even, you know, separate you two. Um but still yet, you know, like we have a church building and we are able to come here on Sunday mornings and worship and praise and and do all of that. Um, and there's even some ways where churches are protected by the government still. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of interesting seeing that those two different sides of things. Yeah. Not to say that we live, you know, just perfect and happy go lucky lives here in the States. You know, there's things that pop up that create difficulty and, and struggle. But nonetheless, you know, there's people fighting for their lives elsewhere. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's not me trying to make people feel guilty for living here in the States. It's a wonderful place to be mm-hmm. in terms of practicing our faith, but, um, but yeah. it's, it's not the norm mm-hmm. where we are fortunate. Um, it's not something that the Bible teaches us to expect. Yeah. So, Well, we would like to thank you for joining us on this episode of the Fully Grown Podcast, which was episode 135. And I don't think we actually explained, although we probably did last week, that this has been Matt and Jack. Yes. Rachel is on vacation. Yeah. No, she's just been sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> just has Not nothing saying to say. anything. <laughs> just, just silently judging everything no, we yeah. say. Rachel is gone, and she, she believes, I think still currently, that she has missed the final episode yeah um of the fully grown podcast but when she gets back we'll have to break the news to her that uh if she's free she's she's got another one so but we do want to thank you for joining us and we hope that you'll join us next week on the actual final episode for the season of fully grown podcast so uh, within within the meantime we do want to wish that you'd stay healthy stay hopeful and go in peace to love and serve the lord